Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Soccer Show and our latest odyssey into your listener questions. Today, we'll be talking about USMNT free kick takers, Gordie Howe hat tricks, why Burnley might not suck, and of course, we have a bonus Graham question because apparently you're all obsessed with him and with good cause. My name's Ryan Bailey and I'm joined right now by your friend of mine. Hello, the aforementioned Graham Rutherford. Hello. How are you, Ryan? I, the, the fact that people keep asking me questions is slightly unsettling, I have to say. <laughs> you are, Graham, for better or worse, an object of the public's fascination. That's all I'll say. There are a lot, When we look at the questions that come in for listener questions, and send them in, by the way, if you have them at totalsoccershow.com, I'd say a, a hefty percentage are aimed at you <laughs> and your the curiosities you provide. Are, are we sure that they're, they're not just you and you're using a pseudonym? <laughs> They'd be a lot more insulting if they were Ryan as a That's scene. true, yeah. They yeah, seem yeah. genuinely yeah. interested in all things Graham. Yeah, yeah. a lot of them uh, d- yeah, display genuine curiosity in your life. I don't uh, specifically have that, Graham. Um, did you have a good week though, Graham? <laughs> How was your Valentine's Day? Did you, uh, did, you, did you write any sonnets or cover any beds in roses? Uh, no, of course I didn't. <laughs> what do you think this is? The Hallmark Factory? Oh, let's move on to a man who's in his element right now, just like Graham is. The birds are singing outside. CONCACAF oh. Champions League has started. MLS is a few days away, and he's provided MLS fans with his terrifying and sometimes depressing preseason predictions, which are soon to come, I understand. Hello, Mr. Joe Lowry. Ryan, why you got to do me like that? No, everybody's going to go out and look for them whenever they drop, and I don't really know when they're dropping. But I know they're not going to be good. That's how this whole preseason predictions thing works. I don't really like to make guesses on things that I, I can't be right on, and I, I'm probably wrong on like 90% of those predictions. Joe, let me give you a little lesson in self-promotion. You just told me off for promoting your work and said it wasn't going to be good. Right. Yes. Wait, did I do bad? Was that bad? <laughs> I mean, it's Shoot. not great. Reset. We're resetting. <laughs> Joe, who did you have uh, just barely missing the playoffs so that when they just barely make the playoffs, they then talk a whole lot of smack in your direction? <laughs> um, Taylor, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't mm-hmm. really remember. I had Chicago kind Attaboy. of on the cusp. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to peel back the onion even one more layer. I genuinely don't know how many teams make the playoffs this year. I think it's seven. Dude, why do you think I left it vague? I don't either. <laughs> but I made my prediction still without knowing that and just went literally where I think they'll finish from top to bottom, 1 to 14. I know there's 14 teams in each conference this year. I should probably learn the playoff thing before, you know, next Saturday. I mean, there's, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a decent chance that like half of MLS also doesn't know how many teams make the playoffs. That's what I'm hoping, so. I'm hoping I'm in the majority. Well, this is a good start to the pod. Uh, MLS's Joe Lowry uh, doesn't want you to read his work. It's no good. And he doesn't know who's in the conferences or how many places there are. Wonderful stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and rounding out our pack, of course, you just heard him right there. It is the man who discovered last night in our group chat what jellied eels are, Taylor Rockwell. I did. And the answer to the next question is, no, thank you. Don't ever need to try them. <laughs> Don't understand why you would. Don't understand why you would eat cold, salted Eels get together one specific part of England from the 18th century, but also still today somehow. Yeah, so uh, for the li- if the listener's not aware, jellied eels are a delicacy uh, that originates from and is still found in delicacy East London. Delicacy is a loose term there. <laughs> <laughs> very delicate. I'm delicately using that phrase. Um, basically, a very, very, very small part of London where the cockatiers are from. Basically, West Ham fans is uh, is the, the target demographic for jellied eels. And you get like pie and mash shops, which will also sell jellied eels. Um, I associate it with kind of post-war austerity. They're getting these eels out of the Thames. They're sticking them in stock that becomes jellied, and they're eating them because gross. 
Yeah. I, I just I just can't believe the heat that I get for some of the things that uh, Scottish people eat when Ryan, your city, has produced that monstrosity and given that to the world. <sighs> Graham, but that, Graham, that was a you know a city that was recovering from a world war and they had to do what they had to do for, again, for austerity originated sake. in the 18th century yeah <laughs> like, I think, like, you know, <laughs> things were austere then as well taylor and they brought it back they brought it back in the 20th century whereas you know scottish people are choosing to do the things they do right now graham i want to be on your side for this food debate <laughs> i really do because i i think i'm your biggest supporter as far as the mutton pie with brown sauce goes thanks Joe. but man it's really hard to back you up on some of these things it's really hard to sympathize with your distaste of these eels when earlier <laughs> if you scroll up in our chat you're talking about chips and beans literally beans they look like baked beans bad baked there is beans nothing for wrong with that on a bread but, roll yeah. which looks completely soggy and brown and i you need to get it together graham because i'm trying to help you but i i can't i can't do this <laughs> i mean so, look i will accept that the execution on this roll was not particularly good but in terms of the fundamentals chips which are <laughs> just like thicker fries in the UK, chips and baked beans in a roll, a bread roll. What's not to like? That's, Do that's you a want great combination. In mush and like, more mush. If you ask me you. to make a, a recipe <laughs> for a meal like that was prepared by a person with depression, like that is what that meal. It's just like fries and beans on a roll. It's just like whatever, man. Just throw it together. We'll eat it. So, and so, I guess uh, that also passes for uh, northern football food. <laughs> to bring the listener in on this private conversation you three are having, this is uh, from Burton Albion. The, you know, one of those Twitter accounts that does all the food that happens in different soccer grounds. Burton Albion have a plain white bap with baked beans and like chips, which are larger cut fries, as Graham says. And people pay money for this and they consume it, um, which was uh, yeah. a, a source of consternation for me, Graham. I, I had a chip butty, and this is completely true. I had a chip butty, admittedly without the beans, but I had a chip butty. Oh, forget it. <laughs> 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 one every single day for four years of high school uh, when I was growing up. And it didn't do any harm to me. Look at me now. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel Graham, like you're some, sick every some... day. You actually have got me there, Oh, my gosh. Let's, let's start doing some listening questions before this devolves any further. Joe has just made the best comment I've ever heard on this podcast. Uh, we're going to get to your listening questions today. Let's start with Cameron Lapine, who says, this is a really, really simple, but a really, really good question. Let's all take a breath and focus on Cameron's question. Why is a soccer match 90 minutes long? We all know soccer matches are 90 minutes long. Sometimes they're longer with injury and extra time. But why 90? Graham, I'll come to you first. Okay, so I didn't really know the answer to this question. And it seems like something that we should all really know as uh, soccer fans. So I, I did a bit of research. It was first set in 1866 that a football match would last 90 minutes. And the first match to be played to this length was a match between Sheffield and London. As far as I'm aware, the team was just London. Um, okay. And the problem was that these two teams, they played different rules and different lengths. So Sheffield played matches that could last up to two hours. Uh, Florentino Perez's worst nightmare. And so basically the two teams agreed to play 90 minutes and that was adopted worldwide when the FA set the rules for association football in the country as a whole a few years later in 1968. I'm This is where maybe my research let me down. I don't know if you guys have something else on this. I couldn't find much science or even logic behind why football matches are 90 minutes long besides that, that origin story. I guess we've all just got used to it and it's tradition and when you think about how little logic there is behind it, um, it opens your mind a little bit to whether football matches should be 90 minutes long. Should that be this untouchable thing that we can never consider changing? And I did see a column by Sam Cunningham this week, who is a writer for The Eye, a newspaper in the UK. And he was focused on just, uh, he was focusing on just how long the ball is in play per Premier League match. So this season, the ball has only been in play for 50%, just over 51% of Premier League matches, which is quite incredible when you think about it. If you're an Aston Villa fan, you've only seen uh, 47 minutes and 27 seconds of football per 90 minutes in the Premier League this season, which then begs the question... Should we have a stopwatch? 
in football and if we have a stopwatch is it to have 90 minutes of pure football per match or are we shortening the length of the match to say 60 minutes and having two 30 minute halves which would actually produce more football on average per Premier League match so Anyway, I, I uh, kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but I, I um, didn't have, I couldn't find much science behind why it's ninety minutes. Just the the origin story. Uh, don't worry about going off on a tangent, Graham. You were just murdered by Joe a few minutes ago, so you, know, you, you need to be re- recovering from that. Um, Joe, anything on this one? I think I concur with Graham. Uh, basically, when when the rules were codified in the late nineteenth century, it was ninety that was selected, forty-five for each half, and an additional rule to allow extra time at the end of each half to compensate for stoppages. But I couldn't find anything beyond the fact that that's just what we decided in the nineteenth yep. century, and we stuck with it. Yeah, I think the answer is trial and error slash that's just what they decided, right? I mean, you have to settle on something. You have to make that the uniform approach if you're trying to make soccer into a serious sport. And that's what happened, right? When the FA is formed, Graham, you already mentioned it, they they really established the rule to have two 45-minute halves. They also established the rule to have 11 players on each side because before that, there had been more players, at least the option to have more players on the field, even up to 20, I read, and maybe even beyond that on on each side, right? Each team, so 40 players total. So you have to choose something, and 90 minutes must have felt right back in the 19th century, and we're still using that today. And whether or not that will always be the case, I don't know, but I would be surprised if we didn't continue to see more discussion about maybe we tweak with the format of these games a little bit as time goes on, because as we've said, it, it was and always has been kind of an arbitrary figure. I think it is a benefit of Soccer Taylor that the whole thing can be done and is typically done within two hours. When you compare it certainly to other, say, American sports, it is yeah. it is a good thing that they can get it done that quickly. But I suppose this does open up the question, Taylor, of whether matches could be shorter. As Graham was talking about, Florentino Perez not that long ago suggested 60-minute games would be something that we should do. He claimed from um, Florentino Perez's private research that 40 percent of 16 to 24 year olds don't like soccer because the games are too long i mean my eyebrow is ancelottiing right now but what do you think about that taylor i think more more like suspicious was his next statistic being 90 percent of people that he talked to said they think a super league would solve all the soccer all the soccer problems <laughs> mm. uh yeah i i i'm good with sticking with 90 i like the idea of trialing the like games last 60 minutes but you stop it when the ball goes out of bounds but i feel like then we are getting into baseball nfl style games that should take an hour but end up taking three hours or four hours yeah i I do enjoy right to your point that that it's it's two hours and then we're out you got the halftime you got a little bit of uh injury time at the end and then on we go you can sort of plan your day around it so i think that's that's nice and i feel like that's kind of that that informal uh, approach to deciding on 90 minutes I, I, I also enjoy because it does feel like you you can imagine the just quick conversation before the game of like well we play two hours we play one hour 90 minutes 90 minutes and then away we go and and there's that it gets like eventually codified I like that kind of organic process for determining the length versus Florentino Perez deciding this is what it should be because this is how I'll make more money somehow um, Joe, let me ask you, you're, as a younger person, put down your TikToks and your fidget spinners and stop <laughs> Tinder swindling someone for a second and let us know what you think about um, <laughs> the length of a game. Do you think that we should make games shorter? Um, do you buy into this idea that younger people don't have the attention span to watch 90 minutes of soccer? Tinder swindling? My goodness gracious. Ooh. Never tried it? <laughs> um, I haven't. Maybe I should be. Yeah. Um, for me, soccer games are are just fine as far as the length goes. And maybe this is just because I'm, I'm so deeply entrenched in this world that I, I probably don't have that fully unbiased perspective here. Change is always weird. And when it's happening to the length of the thing that you're watching a thousand times a week, it, it is very strange. But I think one of the, the biggest advantages that soccer has is that it is shorter than pretty much every major American sport. It's certainly, uh, it's certainly shorter than the NFL and definitely shorter than an NBA game. It's definitely shorter than a Major League Baseball game, and I I don't watch a lot of hockey, so people can correct me on that. It might be similar to the length of a hockey game. But you really can, outside of major tournaments and opportunities where games might go to extra time, you really can plot out the rest of what you have going on that day. You can spend two hours watching a game, and it's like clockwork in that sense. So there are some competitive imbalances that come up when games can vary in length, right? Like you mentioned Aston Villa, I believe, Graham. 
But there's other teams that certainly play even less soccer than that, right? If you're Barnsley and you're – well, they don't have Ishmael as their manager anymore. And West Brom doesn't either. But if you're playing launch and squib and you're, kitchen, you're kicking the ball out every single chance you get, which does really happen – there's fewer minutes in a game, and that does present some competitive imbalances and, and, and really harms the other teams there. But I think the length of games is is fine. I'm not opposed, I suppose, to, to messing with the format slightly, but I don't know that you can really mess with the format in a meaningful way and, and still take advantage of the real value that soccer has for the consumer, which is its set time. Yeah, I'm I'm highly uh, skeptical of this idea that young people are not into soccer because of the length of the matches. I think if there's an obstacle to young people getting involved in soccer, certainly in the UK, it's, it's the probably the fact that it costs about £120 a month to actually watch football on TV. That's, that's probably the biggest obstacle to uh, young people watching football, not the fact that it's 90 minutes long. Well, Graham, on that, um, Agnelli at Juventus, wanted, around the time Perez presented his uh, studious research, he wanted to sell passes for the last 15 minutes of each half because he thought that's what young people wanted to do. Oh, boy. Ugh, yeah. Ick. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a bit cheaper just to watch half an hour of a 90-minute game. Makes no sense to me. Um, but it's a very good question from Cameron, um, and the slightly unsatisfying answer is that it just is 90 minutes long, <laughs> essentially. Thank you very much, Cameron, for that one. Let's get another one here from Taylor Judd. Uh, many jokes about Norwich abound at the moment. Some are deserved. And as a longtime supporter who studied at UAE, that's the University of East Anglia, um, Alan Partridge territory, Taylor, uh, I'd ask, mm. what is one good thing that each relegation battle club is doing that makes you think they stay up this season? Uh, so why don't we take a look at some of the clubs at the bottom of the table, maybe give some reasons to be cheerful, some glimmers of hope, some rays of sunlight for some of the teams who look like they might be dropping to the championship. Should we start from the bottom up? Why don't we start, uh, Taylor, should we start with Burnley, bottom of the table, one win this season, they sold their striker to a relegation rival. Thumbs up? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we've talked about it previously. I think that deal will end up making a lot of sense. I've enjoyed uh, Vickhurst so far for Burnley, uh, working very hard, not scoring a ton of goals, but is is doing the work that I think will help them, if not stay up, then come right back up. And that's sort of my my major point, I would say, to Burnley fans, who, who the many, many thousands of them who are listening, uh, is that Burnley, in my opinion, is a smart club, and that Sean Dyche isn't going anywhere, and I think that's a good thing as well. If your feeling is more mixed on Sean Dyche, maybe you'll disagree, but it seems like he kind of has figured out that that is a club where he has success, where he kind of is able to do what he wants to do. He doesn't strike me as somebody who wants to go on and eventually manage Chelsea or Real Madrid or something like that. So instead, it feels like Burnley have a kind of stable structure for growth, uh, for growing their facilities, uh, especially their practice facilities to kind of uh, continue to bring in new players to strengthen their academy. And I think even if Burnley go down, they have the infrastructure in place. They have a good manager. I expect that they will, if not, come right back up, then at the very least challenge for those promotion spots. Are you suggesting, Taylor, there's something holding um, Sean Dyche back from managing Real Madrid there? I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's just his affinity for Burnley. That's it. Yeah. If, he, if he wanted to go, I'm sure Real Madrid would come calling. They've made stranger decisions, to be fair. <laughs> uh, I do think that maybe the defensive side of things wouldn't work. If Diego Simeone stepped away from Atletico Madrid, maybe that's where Sean Dyche comes in. Oh, that's it. His, his diet of worms as well, probably. Yes, of course. Would hold so what back. is the I'm story sure. behind that? I was about to mention that, and then I realized I have no idea what that story is. So, so the, the, the story is that he, there, there was a... Uh, a suggestion that Sean Dyke eats worms and then he went along with the joke for a while and then clarified that he doesn't eat worms. <laughs> Have yeah. I told the story about watching a guy eat worms once? You guys do right now. His name was Worm. And I asked, why no. is your name Worm? And he said, because I ate worms and then he ate one. I was like six. <laughs> it was weird. Did he what have power beans and fries a and a bun with it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was Ryan, called that- a worm buddy. It was... It was it's a Scottish delicacy, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness me. Well, yeah, I, I've, I've been to Burnley and I've been to Madrid. Very comparable cities, Taylor. Very comparable, I would say, in many, <laughs> many, many ways. Uh, Watford in 19th at the moment. Joe, what do you think about Watford? Any reason to smile about them? Claudio Ranieri hasn't quite turned the ship around yet. No, I think there is reason to smile about Watford right now. At least one specific reason, and that's that Ismail Assar is back from injury. He missed two months of games for Watford after scoring five in their first 12 Premier League games. 
then goes to AFCON and, and, and he was fit in playing some there. He's back, right? And that's a huge boost for Watford. He is an incredible talent. He is the guy that I focused on in my Watford Premier League season preview that we did way back in, I think, August. He's an incredible talent in wide areas. And having him back for Watford with some of the other attacking pieces that they have, it's not much, right, relative to a lot of the teams in the Premier League. But he's good enough that it just might be enough to keep Watford up. Uh, Watford in 19th spot with 15 points, just above them in 18th. Um, Taylor Judd's Norwich, who I think, Graham, we decided were dead and buried a long time ago. They are four points adrift of safety yeah. right now. What do you think? Yeah, they've had quite a, a remarkable turnaround recently. I think Dean Smith is finally starting to, to get his uh, his grips on this team. Got two big wins over Everton and, and Watford recently and, and a player that I would highlight besides the obvious one, Billy Gilmore but I'm going to look beyond Billy Gilmore for once and I'm going to go to uh, uh, Rashika, Milo Rashika, who I think was, was a key player in both of those wins against Everton and Watford and I, I like how Smith is making better use of him recently I thought he was quite an impressive signing when, when they got him in the summer. He was the one player beyond Gilmore that you go, okay, he He's a he's a high quality player who can make a difference at Premier League level for them. Had a slow start to the season, maybe didn't make that instant impact that we thought he would. But I think he's starting to come for the come to the boil. And I I do have doubts generally about that Norwich attack. We've spoken about a certain Mister Sargent uh, recently, and Timo Pukki did it in the Premier League a couple seasons ago. But I, I feel like maybe he's he's not the player he was a couple seasons ago. So Rashika is, is the one player I think if Norwich are going to get out of the danger zone which looks much more feasible now as you say Ryan than it did a few weeks ago he is maybe the driving force for that yeah definitely and another team Taylor that looks like they are heading in the positive direction Newcastle in 17th place at the moment with 21 points they've won three games on the bounce Uh, I believe they're at West Ham this weekend where they do have a pretty good record as well it seems like they had a good window Taylor and um, they might be able to get away with this one yeah, uh, and jumping ahead, uh, in 16th, we have Everton. My reason for optimism for Everton was you aren't getting relegated. My reason for optimism for Newcastle was you also aren't getting relegated. Because, yes, I think they had a really strong window, as you said, Ryan. Basically, it turns out when every player you sign is better than a player that they're replacing, you're going to end up playing a little bit better. I think Eddie Howe has got them playing, and I think fundamentally... When it comes to football clubs, mo money does not mean mo problems. It means very much the opposite. And my assumption is that even if results take a dip, even if things aren't quite hitting where they need to be yet, there is still has to be just such positivity around Newcastle, which is a phrase that I never thought I would ever say. But with the amount of money coming in, I, I think compare them to another relegation struggler who's maybe cutting costs or trying to find a way to succeed, whereas I'm imagining Newcastle are adding new training facilities and making the locker room better. And that has to create a lot of harmony, a lot of good vibes, positive energy, a feeling that we're even if things don't go well, things will end up fine. And I think that removing that pressure, that sort of if we don't stay up, we have to lose all this money. What are we going to do? I don't think that there's any of that going on with Newcastle right now. And I think that takes a huge weight off their backs. And then obviously having better players certainly helps. Taylor, you mentioned Mo money doesn't equal Mo problems mm-hmm. for a team necessarily. How do you explain Manchester United? Well, in that case, it's more incompetence also creates more problems. That's the larger problem. Also, uh, more apathy, uh, more turnover, more managers, a lot of Mo's more there, glazers. not a lot of more money. Mo Glazers, Mo Problems. Yeah, yes. with an addendum to the to, to the Big E law, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Teddy, you also mentioned Everton there with mm-hmm. Super Frankie Lampard in charge. Uh, you think they're safe too? I do, and I think there's... There's just a lot of motivation for Everton. Obviously, aside from staying up, there's always uh, motivation that way. But I think of Lampard, this is sort of, in my mind, his Belichick season, because Bill Belichick, originally his head coaching job was with the Browns, uh, is there for a couple seasons, it doesn't go well, gets fired, jumps around and ends up with the Patriots, and here we are. And so this could be Frank Lampard showing, like, oh, the Chelsea thing was maybe just a a bit too far, I wasn't quite ready for it, I needed to learn some lessons, I've learned those now, I'm going to go to Everton and establish stability and get the team back to where they should be. And I think a lot of that applies to Deli Ali as well, that this is an opportunity for him to sort of reestablish himself and prove that those managers at Spurs were wrong, 
it was the wrong situation. I needed a fresh start. And I imagine he and Lampard will, would get along well over that. And that probably creates a good connection that helps the team play better. Donnie van de Beek is probably happy to play soccer for the first time since he moved to Manchester United, has mm-hmm. a point to prove there. So I think, again, they've got quality. They've got a manager who's very eager to prove uh, that he should have gotten this gig and deserves to be in the Premier League. And I think they've got the talent to keep them up. Graham, just above Everton, we have Leeds and Brentford. Uh, the latter of whom, Brentford, are in pretty bad form. Um, any mm-hmm. danger for those two? Or No, we're doing positives, aren't we? They're going to stay up, right? So I'll start with Leeds first. I think there is absolutely danger for them, but they do have some uh, high-quality individuals. Rafinha might be a slightly obvious one. We've spoken previously in the podcast about just how good he is. So uh, in similar vein to the, to the Norwich one where I look, past maybe the obvious I'm going to say something slightly surprising that I uh, I fear may prompt Taylor Rockwell to jump uh, across the Atlantic to uh, <laughs> physically harm me is uh, Dan Adams James is just okay. <laughs> I uh, I think Leeds are doing some interesting things with Dan James. They're getting him into more goal-scoring positions, which is is interesting. He scored twice against Aston Villa. He played up front as a centre-forward against Everton, and yes, that was a game where they lost, and it, and it didn't really work. But nonetheless, I, I do think it's quite interesting that Bielsa is um, pushing Dan James, who does have the physical attributes and is a talented player, but hit his ceiling at Manchester United. I think it's interesting that they're, they're trying to use him in a different way. And in a similar vein, I had something um, down for Richarlison at Everton as well. Lampard seems to be using him as a, as a centre forward more and getting him up and around uh, DCL, Calvert-Lewin. And I think we're going to see the best version of Richarlison between now and the end of the season. In terms of Brentford, who you mentioned there as well, I mean, there's so much positive to talk about with Brentford. Their their uh, general approach, their use of data, their transfer strategy, the fact they've just signed Christian Eriksen, who if they can get him fit and firing is maybe one of the best players in, in the bottom half of the Premier League. So I, I am not too worried about Brentford. Of all the teams we've mentioned, Brentford are maybe on the periphery of a relegation battle for me, and I think there's plenty for them to be positive about. So, Joe, do we conclude? You are the uh, prediction expert on this podcast. Do we conclude <laughs> that um, everything's going to be fine for all these teams? No one's going to be relegated. We'll all hide right under a pile of coats and it will all be fine somehow. Yeah, I just heard from sources in England that the Premier League is actually pulling a league at Mekis and cancelling relegation for this season. So nice. all these teams really are going to be fine, guys. Excellent news. And on that bombshell, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back very shortly with more listener questions. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We're taking your listener questions, including this one from Trevor L. It seems like a lot of coaches come into their role after being a professional player. Are there many coaches that have done well that hadn't played professionally or semi-pro or retired early due to injury? A good question here from Trevor. Um, Graham, my immediate thoughts turn to a couple of Italian examples. Mm. Arrigo Sacchi, um, who may be a racist jerk, but he's also been quite successful during his time at AC Milan. He won the, uh, the Scudetto in his debut season in 1987, two European Cups in 89 and 90, the uh, precursor to the Champions League, of course. Uh, He did not start his career in soccer at all. He was a shoe salesman. And the other one on that note, I'll add in, Graham, is Maurizio Sarri, who is now at Lazio, of course, previously of Chelsea and Juventus and a billion other Italian clubs. Uh, He did play amateur level, like you and I, Graham, but he didn't start coaching in soccer until his 30s. He worked in a bank before that. Fun times. It is indeed, and, and a, another one that is maybe, um, well, I guess Sari's still working at a high level in, in, in the game, obviously, at Lazio right now, but talking about the elite level right now, one that immediately springs to mind is uh, Julian Nagelsmann, who, he was at 1860 Munich and Augsburg as a youth player, so he was on that he was on that path to becoming a, a professional. He was actually coached by Thomas Tuchel when he was at uh, Augsburg, but he suffered a pretty bad knee injury um, and his playing career ended at 20, um, ended pretty much before it, it got going. He didn't make a, a senior league appearance. Uh, from there, Nagelsmann got a job in Hoffenheim's Youth Academy and then he worked his way up to being head coach in 2015 when he was just 28 years old. From there, he goes to Leipzig. From there, he goes to Bayern Munich. So um, a slightly different route for, uh, for Julian Nagelsmann, but it certainly hasn't. Held him back in being uh, very good at what he does. <laughs> being being a fashion mogul, you mean? Yeah, and and yeah. Uh, ride, being a longboard rider as well. <laughs> Absolutely, Joe. Did you land with anyone else on this question? I did. I had those couple of Italians. I had Nagelsmann. Uh, another one that doesn't actually fit, but I want to mention, and then I will give my other actual answer. Uh, Domenico Tedesco played in the lowest divisions of German football. I think their eighth tier or something in that vicinity and then started coaching when he was 22. But according to the parameters that Trevor gave us, I don't believe that counts. But still very notable and impressive that two of the youngest coaches, maybe the two youngest coaches in Europe's top five leagues, both really are are in the Bundesliga coaching these high profile teams and had very little in the way of playing career. I think that's interesting. The, The other one that I do think fits the parameters from Trevor is Leonardo Hardim. Never played at any high level. Not the biggest name, especially compared to some of the, the coaches that we've mentioned. But after after really not playing, getting involved then as an assistant coach, went on to be the, the manager at Braga and Olympiacos and Sporting and Monaco, which is probably where he's best known. He won the title with that really fun Monaco team in 2017. That's the one that had Mbappe and, and Bernardo Silva and Thomas Lamar and Fabinho and uh, Bakayoko, and there's others still too, Mendy at, at left back. I mean, this was a really strong team, and he coached that group. They made at least some progress in the Champions League as well under Hardim. He's uh, had a couple stints in charge of Monaco now, but he's another one that is maybe not on the same level in terms of name recognition as some of the others we've mentioned, but it's still held a lot of big jobs, especially for someone who's never really been a player. Mm. Uh, Taylor, I can think of two Premier League winning managers we have not mentioned yet. I think I can uh, name those. The first would be Jose Mourinho, retired from the professional game around 24, but never really reached that high of a level. So I think he would uh, be included on this list. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one who was constantly attacked for not having the the sort of resume as a player that would allow him to coach somebody like Sergio Ramos. Uh, I think began his career as a translator for Bobby Robson, a managerial it, career that is. And another uh, player Taylor, who has Taylor, been, yeah. Sir Bobby Robson. I apologize. I apologize. Uh, and then another person who has connections to Sir Bobby Robson would be Andre Villas-Boas, who, I, again, I don't think uh, he wanted to be a player. I think he dealt with some injuries and lived in the same apartment block as Sir Bobby Robson, got into a debate with him about something, and that was enough for Sir Bobby Robson. I'm giving him the sir every time now, Ryan. Thank uh, you. To say, you know what? Come coach for me. And uh, I think he, he did some scouting, some translating, and and here he is managing wherever he's managing now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't actually know. Um, yeah, very good, Taylor. Uh, I think can we put Arsene Wenger in there, or did he play? Yeah. I'm trying to recall. He, that was that was the other one. That's the other one you're going for, isn't it, Arsene Wenger? Because he he has a player, and he does he does yeah. play at a, a lower level in France, um, but 
similar to Mourinho, never really made his mark at the. Yeah. He was he was a professional, right? So he doesn't quite fit the parameters uh, of. Uh, yeah, he has a of, playing of, card. Uh, That's what really threw me. If you go to his wiki, there's a card of him from when he was a player, and it was like, can you be? Can you say he never really played if he has like a professional card of him playing? I feel like I feel like he <laughs> he can be included in that conversation. Uh, can we mention really briefly the Arigo Saki quote that is one of my favorite soccer quotes of all time about this topic? Don't be the racist. Well, it depends one, which yes. one. Uh, <laughs> the uh, I never real when asked like if him not being a player would negatively impact his ability to be a manager. His response was, "I never realized that in order to become a jockey, you have to have first been a horse," which I think yeah. is outstanding. It's very, very good. Very good indeed. As was the question, Trevor. Thank you very much. Richard Rawson asks, are there any lessons that the Club World Cup match or the Champions League uh, final could or should learn from the NFL's superb owl? This could be in areas of presentation, advertising, all the surrounding hoopla or any other area you might want to consider. Um, I'm going to start off on the negative and say something I don't want uh, brought over from the Super Bowl to soccer of any kind, Graham, and that is Mm. having your owner come on the field when you win the trophy. It is always weird. I don't want to see Stan Kroenke giving a speech on the field after, well, it wouldn't happen, after Arsenal win something, but you know, (laughs) that that kind of thing. I don't think um, I I want to see that tradition brought over because it's weird. It's never not weird, Graham. It's so tacky and I, I still can't believe that they do it. They used to do it in MLS and I think the number of people who told MLS stop doing this finally got through and I don't think they have done that the last two or three seasons, um, which is good. Yeah. Well done, MLS, but I'm with you. Let's 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 not bring that over, but maybe let's bring over The Rock doing the on-field introduction. I was trying to think mm. who would do the F, like the English FA Cup version of that. Um, it would be Danny Dyer, of course. It would be Danny Dyer calling everyone a muppet. Are we saying that Danny Dyer, who many of the listeners won't have heard of, is Britain's fa- most famous film star, as opposed to The Rock? <laughs> I think we probably got some more famous film stars than we do. Danny Dyer, but Danny Dyer feels quintessentially FA Cup final, is what I'm trying to get at. I mean, we had Batman, Superman, and Spider-Man, Graham. We had all the big three, and we went with Danny Dyer. Yeah, but they all try. They all they all try to be American. Have you heard how Tom Holland speaks in Spider Man? Danny Dyer is unapologetically <laughs> a jellied eel eating Cockney. He certainly is. He who certainly be, is. Who is like the the British celebrity that is like hype? Like like because you get the Rock because he is the Rock with his tiny waist and uh, forearms that are the size of his waist. That that entire ensemble, I was impressed. I'm not gonna lie. But yeah. uh, who is the British person that like would would amp you up? Would get you going? Because I feel like it would just default to like Ray Winstone or somebody like that. Mm. Stanley Dyer. I think um, (laughs) Idris Elba could do a job, I think. I thought about him. But again, isn't he more like solemn? Like, I I don't know if he would get me amped to play a game the way The Rock might. I don't think we do amped, darling. No, we we don't do hype. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Joe, what what are your thoughts on Richard's question here in terms of things we could port over from the Super Bowl to major soccer matches? Yeah, The Rock was really high on my list. The other thing really high on my list is getting a Guy Fieri commercial in there somewhere, anywhere, really, huh. the, mayor, the mayor of Flavortown. That was easily the best commercial of the Super Bowl, and I'm devastated that it didn't get more run on Monday. Um, t- to be genuine for a second, although I do genuinely mean everything I just said, uh, to, to provide maybe a more helpful point here, for the Club World Cup specifically, it's almost hard for me to think about this question if I'm looping the Club World Cup final or Club World Cup match in with the UEFA Champions League, right? It's not the same deal. It's like comparing, uh, I can't even think of a comparison. They're so far apart, right? A potato and an apple, but you hate potatoes or something like that. I think <laughs> in this, in this particular case, the Club World Cup could benefit from a lot of things that the Super Bowl does because it's not that big of a deal, right? You guys talked about this on Monday. It doesn't get the profile that, that a, a Champions League final might get. It doesn't get the profile that a lot of these top tier games might get because it, it's just not as big, right? It's weird timing. It's, there's all the factors that you guys already mentioned surrounding it that make it less compelling. I think the Club World Cup would benefit from some of the marketing that the Super Bowl gets, right? Like allocate real resources to this. If you want to make this into a, a real thing, like put money behind it. I'm sure there's plenty of money behind it now, but pay people to promote it. Do a better job of promoting it yourself. Get it on, you know, actual real big TV in the United States. If you want to make this thing into something, put it on satellite TV so that people who don't have, you know, FS2 or whatever it was on on Monday or over the weekend, the final, 
so that people can watch it. I mean, one thing that the Super Bowl does really well is it's accessible. You know what day it's going to be on. Yeah. It's going to be on a Sunday. It's going to be, well, on my time, it's always going to be in the late afternoon, early evening. But no matter where you are in the world, you know what you know where it's going to be and you know how you're going to watch it and when it's going to be on. And that just sure, doesn't I, happen with the Club World Cup. And I would, I would actually, this is going to be a very British specific case here, but I would actually say the same as what you're saying about the Club World Cup final as with the Champions League final in the UK. Since going on to BT Sport, the Champions League ha- hasn't been on free-to-air TV and I think BT might have stuck it on YouTube for free once or twice to try and counter that. But that has had an impact on on the Champions League in general being water cooler chat in the UK like it used to be. I don't think it is in the public consciousness of, of non-football fans like it used to be a few years ago. So the Super Bowl seems to be really, really accessible. You know, it's on one of the big networks. If you want to watch it, you can watch it. Whereas in the UK, you have to be a BT Sports subscriber. And there aren't actually that many of them. I think there's a few like maybe a couple million subscribers of BT Sport in the UK. Um, so I, I want the Champions League final, if we're taking lessons from the Super Bowl, I want it to be on one of the big TV networks in the UK so more people can can watch it, not just hardcore football fans. I think, Graham, the, your point you made there to hone in on is to, to access non-soccer fans, which I think is something the Super Bowl does very successfully, yep. you know. Millions of Americans will watch it for the commercials and for the halftime show. And on that, Taylor, um, should we just get the Champions League final? Let, let's put a Dua Leaper in it. I think if you put a Dua Leaper in it, um, success. I, I feel like I should be yes-anding you, but I'm going to take the opposite approach because I actually think there isn't a ton that the Champions League final specifically can learn from the Super Bowl because I don't care about the halftime show we don't have a ton of commercial breaks so like in soccer that is so when we get to halftime people want to use the restroom people want to grab a drink people want to chat for a moment and i think like i enjoy when we just go to go to some people providing useful sometimes useful analysis and then we get back to the game and i think a lot of that sort of forced pageantry would end up just feeling like they were trying to ape the the super bowl because that's become that's what the Super Bowl has become, maybe not organically, but that's just sort of what we expect of it now. I think the Champions League, I don't expect that same level of crazy commercials and a halftime show and seven hours of lead into the final. Uh, I, and I think it's just much more about the game. And I sort of like it for that reason. Taylor, hear Ryan. me out here. I'll, I'll compromise with you. How about halftime analysis with Dua Lipa and Robbie Earl? Okay, now I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'm all in on that. That's fine with me. <laughs> Ryan, are you you know that Julie actually did do a Champions League show in 2019. Not at halftime, but before kickoff. That's happened already. Yeah, that feels like familiar thing that happened, Graham. It's, it's, <laughs> but it, like, even that, I think, is sort of an interesting point, which is, like, with the Super Bowl, you are, you know, it's, it's the world champions of a sport played in the United States. Like, you are appealing to a U.S. audience, and so... This last halftime show, I'm aware that I was probably the target demographic for that halftime show, Joe Lesso. But you're at least looking at like an American audience and what's going to broadly appeal. When you expand that to Europe, like all of Europe, I think it becomes a lot harder. I, I, like ABBA, I guess, would be the crossover artist that maybe would work for halftime. I don't know if you can find somebody that's going to hit a lot of the demos you're looking for when it comes yeah. to the Champions League. And so inevitably, it would be... I, like uh, it'd be like Bad Bunny and the Rolling Stones or something like that, and I, I don't know if we need that either. No, Abba, a very contemporary reference there, Taylor. Um, uh, like, t- tell me, tell me a group that is more like universally accepted than Abba. Do uh, you're not going to like this answer, but Coldplay. That, no, see, <laughs> seem that's to the be... answer. That's a good answer. Coldplay yeah. would be a Champions League halftime show. Good call, Graham. They have been a um, Super Bowl halftime show indeed as well have a they bad not? one yeah <laughs> um, Joe I'm going to lay on you a genuine sincere idea I'd like ported over not necessarily from the Super Bowl but from NFL um, what do you think Joe about more um, projections onto the field you know like the line for the downs in NFL what if we project on some stats I know some some broadcasters do do this and I know we had a hint of this in MLS's back the, uh, the deal in Orlando what do you think about putting some useful information on the playing field? Show me, for example, a true 10 yards when the free kick's taken and that kind of stuff. What do you think, Joe? I like that, Ryan. I'm down to use the space more creatively, right? Because I think that's something that that various sports leagues in, in the U.S. have done, the NFL and even the NBA with some of the things that they can project. Like they'll have the shot clock in the area right above the free throw line or something like that on particular broadcasts. 
I think using some of the green grass on the screen creatively could be really fun. I like the idea of the 10-yard line for free kicks. It gives us an idea of you know how cheeky players can be and how, how they want to maybe take advantage of that, which I think would be entertaining because otherwise we're just left to guess. I like at times when they show some of the graphics for set pieces, right? Let's say it's a corner kick. How often is this particular set piece taker going short versus going long versus going, you know, wherever, right? Front post, back post, in swinger, out swinger. At at opportunities where the ball is stopped, I think you have a lot of chances to play around. And we do see that a little bit. But one, I'm not convinced of how accurate some of those numbers are. And two, we don't see it on every broadcaster, right? So I think there's a lot of room to play with that. Ryan, I like that a lot. We we could get an Adidas logo as well in the center circle uh, while we're at it. I know. think all right. I think what we're, what <laughs> we're landing upon is that we just need different things for different viewers. And so let's say NBC has the Champions League one year. Joe's version should be on like MSNBC, and it should be all like the numbers and the data, <laughs> and it's a ticker going across. I'm not sure what like Children's Network NBC has, but I like the idea of going the Nickelodeon route and. The yeah. thing that hockey did in the 90s was they would have the puck with like a heat stream behind it so that if it was a slap shot, they would make it look like it had like fire behind it so you could track the shot and see oh, how fast that. it's traveling. Nice. Like I think we should get more of like those types of graphics in if you want a more entertaining 90s approach to uh, the Champions League final. And I think that that's what we need. We Like sci-fi oh, okay. I think is also owned by NBC. We get some, I guess like one team playing aliens. We get a little bit of a uh, Space Jam situation. I think there's lots to play with here. Yeah, and if Joe's version is on uh, MSNBC, mine's just um, MP- MTV playing a Dua Lipa concert, I think, at this point. I think yours is E, Ryan. Yours is either yeah. E or Bravo. <laughs> I have since looked up the networks that NBC controls. Universal Kids, that could be the fun one, Taylor. Yeah, wait, thank, you, thank you, Joe. Thank you, You're Joe. You're welcome. That's mine. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Richard, for that question. Some food for thought there. We've got a couple more questions coming after this quick break. Back soon. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back, everybody. Jake Schroeder has a question for y'all. It's a two-parter. First part. At the moment, the USMNT does not seem to have a designated free kick taker. 
who would you designate for this role? Why don't we handle this part before we handle part two? Uh, Joe, I'll come to you first. I think I would take a slight issue with the question. I think the U.S. MNT does have a, a primary free kick taker. It's Christian Pulisic, right? Whenever he's been on the field or almost all the times that he's been on the field, he's been the guy taking those set pieces. Now, he hasn't been playing as much for the U.S., you know, recently as he has some in the past because he's been dealing with injuries and all of that jazz. But he's taken a lot of set pieces for the U.S. Now, I don't necessarily think that I would choose him to be my designated set piece taker, but I think he has been. I, I don't know how married to that Peralta is, though, because there's a couple of challengers that I think could put up a really good fight with Christian Pulisic as far as who should take some of those dead ball situations. I think if he's on the field, and Taylor, you, I, I appreciate your your input here and Graham, yours as well. If he's on the field, I think Kellen Acosta should be that taker, especially after what we saw against Honduras. We've seen it from him in the past in MLS and, and with the U.S. men's national team. He can drop some dimes, right? He had multiple assists on set pieces in that most recent World Cup qualifier. He's dangerous on set pieces with that right foot. If Acosta's not on the field, I would posit that Gio Reyna should be that taker. Yeah. We just watched a bunch of Gio Reyna footage earlier this week for the uh, for the show we did yesterday in the feed. Scroll on up, listener, if you haven't heard that one, analyzing different USMNT players. And Gio Reyna was one of those guys... He's a dangerous set-piece taker. I talked about this in the Tuesday show against El Salvador, the only World Cup qualifier he's played in for the U.S. this cycle ever, really, for Giorena. He dropped some absolute dimes on, on set-pieces, again, with his right foot, just like Acosta. He's a right-footed taker. He hasn't been the guy to take them over Christian Pulisic, at least I don't think in the past. But I would take one or, or both of those guys before it gets to Christian Pulisic. But even if it is Pulisic, I don't know that that's always the worst thing. Graham? Yeah, I, I think um, I agree with pretty much everything Joe said there. Acosta, if he's on the on the field, I think his addition in that in that World Cup qualifier against Honduras um, showed that he's he's maybe the best of the pool the US have had recently. But the hope is that Reyna can find some hamstrings again, and he's going to be the one taking set pieces um, as a first team starter at, at the World Cup later this year. So. Um, yeah, I think as we discussed on the podcast yesterday, the American, Americans in Action pod, he gives the US a lot of things they've been missing recently. And I think one of those things is, is someone who can accurately uh, take a set piece because I am not convinced with Pulisic taking those at the moment. What do you think, Taylor? Uh, yeah, there will be no arguments for me. I would posit that Jake is aware that Kellen Acosta is in this conversation, which I'm assuming is why Kellen Acosta features in the second part of the question. I do think he's secured his spot. I do think that he proved himself to be at the very least in that conversation as a free kick taker uh, against Honduras. And I would agree with what's already been said that it probably is Pulisic, but I'm not sure if that's the best decision, at least right now. I think you need a free kick taker to have rational confidence. I think Pulisic doesn't have much confidence at all. And I think somebody like Cristiano Ronaldo has irrational confidence, but somebody who I think can back themselves to put it on frame, to play the ball where it needs to be. I think Pulisic, when he is feeling it, can do that. I think Kellen Acosta has shown he can do that. And I think Gio Reyna can absolutely do that. So those would be the three in not the order I would choose them. I would go uh, Kellen. Right now I would go Gio Reyna, if healthy, Kellen Acosta, and then Christian Pulisic. Very nice. Conversations like this made me glad that England have trips. Who's the hmm. uh, number one pick for me? Uh, second part of the question, you mentioned already, Taylor, Kellen Acosta. Um, has he secured his spot on the 22 World Cup roster? Has the LAFC man done what it takes? I think he has. I think he has, from a playing standpoint, I think he's proven himself to be capable of responding to criticism, adjusting his game as was necessary to get back into the squad conversation to get back into some uh, like cameo appearances and then lead that into some substitute appearances and that gets to some starting appearances. And I think he has shown that he can do what is asked of him. And so I think from a playing standpoint, he is. And then obviously from a Greg Berhalter standpoint, I think he is a player that Berhalter relies upon, trusts to get a job done if Tyler Adams can't go to play as a number eight, if somebody else can't go. And I think he can utilize him in different ways. So yeah, I think... Barring injury or a massive downturn in form, I think Kellen Acosta is in that squad, should the U.S. qualify. Joseph, do you concur? I concur. I don't think Acosta has been as consistent in every single game as Greg Berhalter or U.S. fans would want him to be. Agreed. You know, he, he had some really, really good games over the summer. He had some mediocre games over the summer, and, and he had a really, really poor game against Panama earlier in World Cup qualifying. But, I mean, he, he has... 
the most obvious skill set to replace someone like Tyler Adams. He is the most obvious stylistic match for Adams at the six. So when Adams can't go, it kind of makes sense to put someone in who's rangy and, and similar in that particular way. And then you have the set piece factor. So I think Acosta is going to Qatar if the U.S. is going to Qatar. Any further to add, Graham Ruthven? No, just that the only, I'm I'm always a bit wary of uh, predicting squads ten month ten months out from yeah. a a tournament, especially when it's a player who's just joined a, a new club. So that's that's a sort of an unpredictable thing, a different factor that may shake things up for Kellen Acosta. Obviously, if he doesn't settle in, I, I think he will. But if if he doesn't settle in well, he's not playing well, then that maybe changes things slightly. But at this moment, yeah, he's 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 got to be a, a, a surefire bet to be in that uh, not a first team figure but uh, in that roster anyway indeed thank you very much Jake for the question here's one from Patrick Delaney in ice hockey a gaudy howl hat trick is a goal assist and a fight what would the soccer equivalent be and who <laughs> would it be named after gaudy howl my research tells me I know nothing about hockey is a legendary hall of famer with the Detroit Red Wings and I figured based on his name that he was the most Canadian sounding man in the world he is from Canada um, I would say, Patrick, that um, we, can, we can bounce around some names, but this Gordie Howe hat-trick has been done quite a few times in soccer. It's been done twice this season. It was done last week. Danny Alves did this, or yeah. let's say two weeks ago, against Barcelona, uh, Barcelona against Atleti, the 4-2 win. Uh, Danny Alves scored the fourth goal. He assisted Jordi Alba for the opener, and he got a red for a late challenge on Yannick Carrasco. Um, Graham, pop quiz, can you name the other time it's happened this season? Uh, no, sorry, that, that's going to take me a while to, to think about, and that is not going to be great listening, just silence while I think <laughs> well, about it, so no, I can't name it. What was the I lead, came to Ryan? you because it's, uh, it's your countryman, Graham, Andy wow. Robertson. Uh, last December oh. in a Tottenham, in the 2-2 draw against Tottenham at Tottenham, scored course, the second yeah. goal, assisted Jota for the opener, then got his marching orders. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, you do now. There you go. Um, so, yeah, that, that does certainly happen. I've got a few other examples, but I'm hogging the mic right now. Taylor, your thoughts on this question? So I uh, took it a different way, I'm now realizing, because I thought it was just like, if that's what a Gordie Howe hat trick is, what are some other ones? And I came up with random other things that could be too, like a Me too, me too, hat That's why I did. Right, cool, 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 cool. <laughs> oh. Uh, I have a, no, but I think your interpretation is correct, Ryan, so that's my okay. bad. But this is the way I've gone with it. Uh, a, Diego, a Diego Costa is a goal drawing a yellow card for an opponent and then getting a red card yourself. <laughs> uh, Giassi Zardes is scoring three goals for your club, but somehow people who supposedly care about your country don't care about that. And a, an Mbappe would be a goal after skipping past a defender, a goal after earning a penalty, and another player scoring a goal because you are triple marked. <laughs> that's good. I like it. I, I, I think your interpretation of the question is much better, Taylor. I will add on a Chiellini, which is uh, being a downright dishonorable person after horse-collaring someone in a major final. Um, Graham, uh, sorry, Joe. Joe, what have you got here? Oh, Ryan, I like how you will never get over that. It, it brings me some that. weird, twisted joy. I have an Aryan Robin hat trick where it's still just three goals, but all three come from cutting in from the right wing onto your left foot and scoring at the far post. Uh, I've got a Zlatan hat trick. A bicycle kick goal, a goal from outside the box, and then talking about himself in the third person in the post-match presser. That's my Zlatan hat trick. <laughs> and then my last one is a Conte hat trick, which is one random goal that nobody really expected, and then uh, two really, really important tackles. And there you go, one, two, three. There's the Conte hat trick. I like it. Graham, which way did you go with this question? Yeah, I went, I went this way. So I've got a Ramos wink, which is a headed goal from a corner kick. The final 10 minutes of a match spent as an emergency forward and then an <laughs> eye gouge of an opponent. Oh, uh, and then I've got a Scott Brown kiss as well, which is a crunching tackle, a torn shirt and a goal celebration with a smirk in front of the away end of a stadium. So there's like my it. two suggestions. Ryan, I, I have since thought more about this question from the way you approached it. And I think... What I know about Gordy Howe, aside from this, is that he played until he was, what, like 55 or something like that? Wow. And I think played, like, without a helmet at various points. I don't know. He's a, he's a tough dude who played for a really long time, but did have moments of uh, incredible genius and then moments when he would get a little bit savage. Th that feels a, a, little, like, a little bit like Son Heung-min, maybe? Like, I feel like he tends to score goals, get assists, and then occasionally gets random red cards. But I also won't be surprised if he plays for like another 10, 15 years at a high, high level. So maybe yeah. he is my Gordie Howe equivalent. 
Yeah, and and the thing about Son Young Min is he does a really good like innocent face yes. afterwards that that then will make people feel really sorry yep. for him despite the fact he's just like decapitating someone <laughs> or something. He certainly wouldn't do that. Come on, he's a good guy. Exactly. I think if we were to name the Gordie Howe hat trick, the soccer equivalent, a goal assist and a fight, which we've established has happened a couple of times this season. Which player would we name it after, though? Because I, I would naturally gravitate, Taylor, towards Diego Costa. Yeah. But I don't think he's actually done this. So it's No, a, he probably has He's got it. to he just, have. He's one of those, like, like, it's similar to Mark Van Bommel, who you assumed got, like, 40 red cards in his career and I think got one or none. Like, I, I have a feeling Diego Costa doesn't get as many cards as I'd like to think. Sergio Ramos doesn't really fit because I guess he scores a bunch of goals. Maybe it's a Ramos. Does he assist a whole bunch? Because I was going to say Zlatan mm. also could be in this category, but I have a hard time believing that Zlatan gets high assist numbers. Mm. I'm thinking of a few more of these on the fly, by the way. This is a very fun game. How about a Granite Xhaka, which is a bad performance, a yellow card, then a red card? Um, <laughs> or maybe uh, a Jose Mourinho in the press conference. You criticize one player, then a second player, then a third player. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 <laughs> The possibilities are endless. It's an excellent one. Any more for any more before we move on to uh, our bonus section, gents? Bonus, 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 Graham content, bonus, Graham content. Here we go. By popular demand, Graham Rutherford, our section devoted to you for the second week running. Uh, It's a question aimed at you, Graham, from Jacob Court. Did Greg Berhalter steal a girl from Graham when they were younger? Or is there another reason Graham seems to have such a problem with 3G? Kidding, <laughs> but seriously, smiley face, Graham. Uh, this is this is about the Air Jordans thing, isn't it? Or is it, or is it about... Yeah, I think it's about the Air Jordans thing and not my... Um, my lingering suspicion that this whole thing isn't going to work out for the US MNT. Uh, the Air Jordans thing... It's, it, I'm trying to articulate it. It's it's a bit like if your if your dad was really into trainers, I'd be like, Dad, act your age. Like if 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 my dad was like using the sneakers app or in a queue outside a Supreme store or something, <laughs> like that wouldn't fit with my uh, preconceived ideas of what a dad should be. And it's similar with like a football manager. Like that's not what a football manager does. Graham, aren't you so. aren't you a father? I am. Don't you but care I'm, about sneakers I'm, and jerseys? But Graham's not <laughs> Graham's dad, Taylor. This is true. I guess, but that's my question, though. Is like, uh, uh, if you're into the thing organically from an early age, like Graham, you're you're, in, you're into uh, sneaker culture, aren't, aren't you? Or am I mistaken? Uh, kind of. Okay. I like trainers, but not not the culture. Like a lot of these trainers now that look like orthopedic hospital shoes. Mm-hmm. I don't really understand what's going on. <laughs> Taylor, he there. likes he likes it enough to criticize other people for wearing them. Oh, there it is. But I think like I, I you know I wonder about those things. Like at, at a certain point, are you like trying too hard, or if it's a thing that you've always been interested in, is it acceptable? The the larger question I have, Graham, is like there do seem to be moments when you. Like you just did, imply that you have serious doubts about Burhalter as a manager, and that's like, what are those concerns aside from the U.S. just isn't like firing at all cylinders every single game? Generally, I am skeptical of managers in international football who who have kind of grand ideas of ideology, and 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 I'm not sure if that is Burhalter. Maybe his ideas aren't that grand, I mean, I but there's a lot of talk his, of. I think he began his press conference by saying like we're going to change the way the world views American soccer. So, <laughs> right, okay, so maybe he does have grand ideas, and and with national team managers, I am always suspicious of that. It never really seems to work. The the the, the managers who are successful in international football tend to be the pragmatists. And so that's why I say, like, with Berhalter, Berhalter, like, sure, you can have your identity and, like, the way you play, but also have someone like Daryl DK on the bench. So if it's not working, you can, like, throw on someone to have a bit some, have a bit more physicality up front. I like that adaptability, and I'm not convinced Berhalter has that, and I think it could be his downfall. It's, it's this lingering suspicion that I've got in the back of my mind when we talk about him. Is Roberto it, Mancini it, would like a word, Graham. Roberto <laughs> Mancini would like a word. Well, <laughs> okay, I have two questions, Graham. Uh, or one for Graham, one for the whole group. The first is, like, is it just that he has grandiose ideas like that they're not being executed like is it that the tactics don't back up like it, it, or is it just the idea that he thinks i have this massive idea for how we're supposed to play i just i just think you, with international football you you for club management what he's doing absolutely fine like i think he mm-hmm. uh, berhalter I, I my suspicion again it's it's all kind of hypothetical but 
I suspect he might be a better club manager than an international manager because you just have the time to do those yeah. things. So when I see the US play, I can see what he's trying to do, but it, it feels all very half-baked um, and maybe not complete. And I just wonder how far, how complete the US is ever going to get with him in charge just because he's not going to have the time. And and when he does have the time, like when he has Camp, Camp, Camp Candy Cane and the camp before the, the first window this year, it's with like a different group of players and then other players get drafted in and the European players come and join and they're not had the time that the other players have had and it just, it just all feels a little bit disjointed. But I honestly do hope he proves me wrong. Like, I, I hope he proves me wrong, but I, I suspect it's not going to end that well. I have, I have fewer concerns about like the camp aspect of things and more about, yeah, to your point, the idea of club ideas or ideas working at club when you have day on day to get everybody on board and work with them on an individual basis. You can't do that quite as much at national team level. All of this, Graham, goes to the idea of that introductory, those introductory comments. It, it seems like whenever a new coach takes over the U.S., they always end up saying something along those lines. And I don't know if that's a consistent thing around the world. But when TSS starts its soccer consulting uh, gig... That's totally going to happen someday. One of my biggest pieces of advice is going to be, when you take over, do not make grandiose plans. And that seems like it would be Graham's department, because it feels, from what I've come to learn about Graham in Scotland, like taking over the Scotland gig would be like, well, we'll see what happens, versus like we're yeah. going to reinvent Scottish football and re-identify what Scotland is to the footballing world. Like, Graham, what would you advise a manager to say when they're hired? Just like, we'll see how it goes? Yeah, like... Don't get above your station, and your station is very low to begin with, so that's my advice. <laughs> and I'm, you'll I'm, be wearing loafers on the sideline. Yeah, if you're lucky, loafers. Yeah, true. I was thinking, like, Crocs. Is that better? <laughs> no, it's worse. That's the idea. Okay, got it. <laughs> Do you just want Burhalter to be a dad? Is that what it is? Like, you want him to wear Crocs? Yes. You want to wear pleated he, khakis with a cell phone holster? So, that's what Graham wants. Yeah, exactly. There is one thing, you know, the whole Starbucks collection thing. That fits the persona of a manager. Like, that is fine. Like, collect your NAF Starbucks mugs. But don't couple that with wearing cool Air Jordans. That's easily that the, just that's easily the weirder thing. The Starbucks mugs is easily the weirder thing than the Jordans. Oh my. <laughs> Graham, wa- Graham wants uh, Greg Berhalter to pull up to a game in a minivan. Tyler Adams and Christian Pulisic come skipping out. Uh, Greg Berhalter has packed them lunches. Is that what you want, Graham? Now, now I'm coming yeah. around to this idea. Yeah, rolling up the minivan, listening to ABBA or Coldplay, one or the other. It'll be fine. <laughs> I you do equate those two things. I'm, I've got to step in and say I'm a dad and I have a Starbucks mug collection. Uh, Joey, oh, no. <laughs> I even had one from Arizona when I went there last year. That makes it okay then. What, what's right, it, Ryan, city or state, Ryan? Is it a city in Arizona or just a state? It's a state one. Okay, nice, nice. Ryan, what's what's the attraction? Why? What's the attraction with those mugs, genuinely? Genuinely, they're the best mugs I have because they're really big and when I pour a cup of tea, I can get a big pour in there. Okay. Well, if it's a practical reason, I get that, but <laughs> I don't know if Berhalter's obsession with him is practical. He seems to like the fancy design on the outside yeah. a oh. lot more. I feel seen all the same, so uh, shout out to any Starbucks <laughs> mug collectors out there as well. Uh, one final question for me, Graham. Uh, your Greg Power rankings, Berhalter or Cousin Greg, who comes higher? Oh, it's always Cousin Greg. <laughs> you could put anyone in that ranking. Uh, and it would be Cousin Greg on top. More Cousin Greg, please, as, as my, uh, that's my presidential slogan. Absolutely. Cousin Greg as an assistant manager with Tom as the, the, the manager feels like an equally hilarious uh, version of, like, of, of Ted Lasso, but it also a much more malicious version of Ted Lasso that I think I, I would that. really enjoy. Yeah. We know they own hearts a- or hips. I forget which one. Maybe that should be the, the next season. <laughs> Oh, yes, the spin-off. That's it. That's it. They they visit that uh, storyline that they very quickly abandoned as yep. a one-off joke. And, uh, <laughs> and Tom and Greg go and manage that Scottish team. Because after all, if you're going to make a Tomlet, you've got to break a few Gregs, as we say <laughs> on this show. Uh, Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your listener question answer, sir. Right back at you, buddy. He said that email, what, like 150 times in one night? Oh, I love that show. <laughs> Such a good show. Graham Rutherford, thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan. Joe Lowry, I raise my Arizona Starbucks mug to you, sir. Aw, thanks, Ryan. Listener, catch you soon. Bye! Can we all agree that Ryan's name should be Basic Bailey? Because I'm into it.